Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. I have the verses there printed for you on your outline. Did I mention the steeple earlier? Did you catch the steeple? You know, the steeple symbolically, it many, mean many things depending who defines it, but typically what it was built for was to reach into the heavens, be the highest structure in any given community or township, so that as people looked at it, their gaze would be fixed heavenward from where Christ reigns. And so there's this Christological picture that has historically been tied with the steeple. And it's lost some of its meaning because of skyscrapers and just much taller buildings. But that won't be the case here. Uh, because we, had, we got a four-foot variance to build it that tall. And there won't be any other buildings immediate anyways that will be as tall as that one. So it'll serve the purpose of pointing our gaze heavenward and to consider who reigns from heaven. And that's the job of us in the pew, in the seats now, but in the pew soon, to be proclaiming the one that is called to our attention because of such a symbol. You're the substance of what that talks about by talking and being Christ to people. So they know who Christ is and that he does reign, that he does have dominion. That's a beautiful picture of that, I believe. And another important feature that we have to continue to maintain as a church is preaching the whole counsel of God, even a tough passage like the one we have before us today. Back when I started Second Peter, uh, Sean Averill, who always checks with me as to what it is that we, I should preach and, and uh, what I'm preaching next, he said, boy, Second Peter, that's a tough one, Pastor, he said. And I agreed with him at the time, but I agree with him more so now because linguistically this is the toughest book I've ever worked through on, on just on the language level of the Greek itself and then its meanings and its teachings as well. But as we study it and dig into it, we see how it does in fact do the job the Holy Spirit has intended. It grows us in grace and knowledge. That's the thesis of this book, that we would grow in grace and in knowledge together in marriage to one another. So hear God's word as we conclude chapter 2, which is this long diatribe of Peter called a righteous tirade against false teaching, starting at verse 17 down to verse 22, the third part of the warning concerning false teachers from, from the apostle Peter. Starting at verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the straightforward nature of your word. We thank you for the whole counsel of God that you have given us in your word. We thank you for even these difficult verses as they serve the purpose, your purpose, of growing your people in grace and knowledge. Lord, we think of the words of Jesus. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, guide and direct our thoughts. May they be honoring to you. Change us as a result of what we hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as I alluded to, this is a very complex book. Second Peter, even more so than First Peter, is he uses language and phraseology that's unique to this book among the rest of the books of the New Testament, and even some of the books written in a similar time frame that are not in the biblical text. So Peter addresses some hard issues that have to be considered, and the ideas or the thoughts that are behind these do find parallel in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Jude, and in other places. But we have here some of the most straightforward verses about false teachers in general, and then the overarching larger subject of reprobation, or what is the state of the non-elect in the midst of the elect. So hear God's word as we study through it, recognizing its complexity, but digging in with me so you wrestle with this passage to see what it is God is teaching us as Peter continues to warn about false teachers. Certainly false teachers were prevalent in that day. Uh, false teachers have been prevalent in every age of the church and no less true today. I think false teaching takes on different form depending on the culture. In other words, our American culture, we have to remember, uh, is given over in large part to materialism. Now, on the one hand, there's a great blessing in having much because as the church uses this wisely, we can see great expansion for the kingdom, great support for the expansion of the kingdom in all sorts of places. The flip side is a temptation to become dependent upon those same materials that we're blessed with. And materialism is always constantly a struggle for us in America. In particular, I think every culture has its thing that happens to be ours. So it makes sense that a false teacher would take that particular area of strength and turn it into weakness. And we'll see how that works itself out as I try to paint specific examples for our day. But let's look now at the passage and see first the influence of false teachers being displayed in their actions and activities. Starting at verse 17, this beautiful word picture, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. A waterless spring, that's a well with no water in it. Looks promising, but ultimately it has nothing substantive to give. Uh, my son started a soccer camp last week, and they ran out of water, and I was sitting up in my seat with Nico while we were getting ready to fill up AJ's water bottle, and I told Nico to run down to the drinking fountain that I saw just 55 yards away and fill it up. And so he ran down there expecting fully to get water out of it. It looked like it, it was a drinking fountain, looked just like it. In a hot day, it made you thirsty looking at it because you knew it had water in it, right? Well, he goes to press the button, and no water comes out. And his shoulders kind of slump, and he comes back to tell me nothing was in it. It was worse in the sense to not have any water than to have something that said it had something to give you, could quench your thirst, but then fail you. That's what a false teacher does. They look really good on the outside. They say it really nice. Uh, they're very, very elegant in their speech and attractive in the way they present things. But in the end, when you really analyze it, after you walk out of hearing one, what did they really say? Nothing. That's really what it comes down to. Their emptiness is man made manifest. I think a parallel, although not false teachers, just false advertising is that late night television that no one wants to admit but they all see at some point you know those different advertised things you're kind of sleepy and tired and you can see why it's so effective especially if you're maybe a little depressed and a little poor a little broke and someone comes on and tells you that i have a way where with no money down you could buy depleted homes and sell them and turn them and make millions just buy my packet and i'll show you how i mean what we're thinking how easy could that be it, you know, it's, it looks good, but it's empty ultimately. Otherwise, everybody would be running around doing it. Then think of another one. Selling and moving products via newspaper ads uh, from home. Again, buy the person's $59.99 package and you too will know how. And you can make millions this way. And they have testimony after testimony of someone saying that I made $30,000 just this last month alone. And my favorite of all time, though, has to be the one where you can lose weight 
by taking six to eight pills that are made up of ground seashells right before you eat a fatty meal. Every meal. So that's 25 pills a day of ground up seashells. Someone's got to be laughing somewhere about this. <laughs> uh, no joke, that's, that's really a product that was for sale a few years ago. They're serious, they're confident, they say what they believe about this to sell it, but really it's empty at the end of the day. Emptiness is what exemplifies the teaching of the false teachers. Uh, it is truly a well that has no water in it. But also connected in verse 17 is this picture of instability. Look at verse 17 again. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Literally, mist could be translated and probably is rightly translated as cloud. Uh, mist is a general term. Cloud is specific to those uh, bodies of mist that are in, uh, up in the atmosphere driven by a storm. You could see a cloud moving by a storm. And considering an agrarian society, much like the individual looking to the drinking fountain that gives no water, to the farmer who is looking at the clouds for rain, uh, because they needed rain to live, because that fed, if you will, or nourished the crops. And so when a cloud came, that brought great promise. If you were not a, an experienced farmer, you would get excited every time you saw a cloud. Here's another possibility for nourishment. And so unsteady people might see that cloud and get excited about it, when in reality, in a false teacher, and what they say, it comes and it goes and it never drops a drop. That's the, that's the picture that we have here, is a cloud who, who promises but gives nothing. And it's, in fact, driven away. It's temporary. It's unreliable, transient, unstable. In fact, if you would compare such a cloud moving around with every storm, unpredictable, no matter what Doppler says or the radar says, they think it'll go this way, but it could go that way. And you can never nail it down because there's no real authority over it, not humanly speaking. Well, the false teacher is very similar in that they float around. They are not easily nailed down as to their positions. They're not nailed down from an accountability standpoint. They have no ecclesiastical authority. They're just on their own. And amazingly, folks like this do very well independently. But they are not, whenever they're confronted, they're able to uh, repel that confrontation with their own twisted way of saying or teaching something. Think of some of the examples you know so well. I'm even willing to name a few. Uh, Benny Hinn, he would be a classic example of a cloud, a waterless cloud. He's the original founder of the World Heart Outreach Center in Orlando. He left that and began an independent, basically itinerant ministry based out of California called Benny Hinn Ministries. Now, he has no ecclesiastical accountability whatsoever. Organized churches have tried to call him to account. He has multiple heretical teachings that are really very point to the fundamentals of the faith that he has misunderstandings about at least, if not purposely trying to misrepresent. Uh, he conducts miracle crusades. They float around like a cloud. Very much like Elvis in the 70s, he shows up at stadiums all over the place with his miracle crusade. He comes and goes. Uh, as fast as he comes, he's gone. Uh, he supports an extremely extravagant lifestyle with donations collected at these miracle crusades. But more importantly, consider what he says, and you'll see why it's uh, hard to nail someone down who says these things. And if he has no accountability, who really will hold him to what he is saying as error? He says this in one, in one interview. I see rows of caskets lining up in front of this TV set. And I see actual loved ones picking up the hands of the dead and letting them touch the TV screen, and people are getting raised. I'm glad you're laughing, but people aren't laughing that are raising their, literally in Africa at this time of this crusade, people were doing this with their loved ones because he promised something that he can name and you can claim. He promises by enticing with, with uh, sensual different temptations that he can do these things. He said also, God will begin to prosper you for money always follows righteousness. 
He says poverty is from the devil and that God wants all Christians prosperous. He says God will not move unless I say it. Why? Because he has made us co-workers with him. He sets things up that way. He's in town and he's out. He's a cloud driven by the storm. Promises all sorts of things. But he actually delivers nothing. How many people do you know that have been healed by Benny Hinn? I'll give you a week. Go find someone healed by Benny Hinn. Take the month. I'll bet you don't find anybody. Boastfulness is also something that characterizes the, the false teacher. Verse 18 begins, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This first phrase, they're speaking loud boasts of folly. Now, Peter describes it as folly. Uh, but loud boasting comes from someone who is confident in what they're saying. Uh, maybe that, not that they believe the essence of it, but they confidently espouse something. Uh, one commentator says it's swelling words of vanity, or another says a bluster in order to dupe someone. Uh, they're speaking loud boasts of folly. They're very confident. And I know many people who will tell me, and seemingly stable people, that they really like this or that teacher because they, that person believes what they, they're saying. Or they're so convincing, or they believe they're so confident. Look at how confident he is, as if, that, as if that has anything to do with the substance of what they're saying. They speak loud boasts of folly. Someone says, no one would speak that boldly about something they didn't really believe. It must be true. And again, the steady soul who's rooted in the word of God, discipled and part of the body of, of uh, supporting brothers and sisters may not be so easily duped. But the person who's floating out there, who has a basic knowledge of Christ, they might be easily duped by someone saying they've got some secret they've been missing. Loud boasts of folly. They dazzled the eyes of the simple by high-flown stuff of words, as Calvin said. Many an unsteady soul is drawn to them based on their charisma and confidence, which is manifested by the way they speak. But this is not all. The verse says again in verse 18, continuing to the next phrase, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. So we see how it is that they draw folks in. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. And as I alluded to earlier, there are many ways in which sensuality can be illicit. We're sensual beings. That's not sinful. Tasting, feeling, touching. God made us that way. And in its right form, it's, it's beautiful. But sensuality can also be sinful when it becomes an idol to us in an illicit way. And that's the form in which their teaching takes. And they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Now, it doesn't mean that they go outright and talk about those, those really out there, you know that they're sensual sins kind of enticing, but rather, back to this point of materialism, if you think of some of these false teachers in our day, the way they'll draw us in is by making it seem that material is not only not evil, you, God wants you to have it, God really wants it to be in your life. In fact, that's an evidence that God loves you by having this stuff. And they entice with that kind of thinking. So the unsteady soul who hears this who doesn't have anything, thinks, but God, will God love me if he gives me this stuff? If he does give me this stuff, then he must love me. And he entices someone who's wanting, someone who needs, who feels like they're in poverty, and they come to that message. They entice with this message. Sensual passions of the flesh are appealed to, and they come after. There's a particular kind of theology that has been very unique to America over the last, really, 25 years. It's been longer than that in different forms. But you can call it the health and wealth theology. You could call it the name it, claim it theology, the prosperity gospel, the word of faith theology. It's all essentially the same. It's not monolithic. They don't have a book on it. You just know it when you hear it. 
Basically, that you have the ability as a Christian to speak to God and he must give to you what you want. This fits exactly the description of what Peter warns us to be careful of. The enticed by sensual passions of the flesh. Wow, I can have that? I can have that? God wants me to have that? That's the kind of thing that is taught. Let me just name a few people that fit this description very well. Probably my favorite name, and it's not humorous at all. False teaching is not funny. But my favorite name for a health and wealth preacher has got to be Creflo Dollar. Uh, he pastors a 24,000-member World Changers Church International in Georgia. And that's a providentially fitting name, you've got to admit, Dollar. It's almost as good as Dewey Cheatham and Howe for a law firm. <laughs> no theological training whatsoever for Mr. Dollar. Mentored by his fellow false teacher, Kenneth Copeland. By gross misinterpretation, and I mean gross misinterpretation of Philippians 2, Dollar teaches that we have a level of equality with God through Christ. Thus, being little gods, and he literally says this with a small g, we can boldly ask or believe for whatever we want materially. This is what he says. See, there are some people that believe not in prosperity. They don't want to hear about that God is a God, about that God is a God who wants to put money in your hand. Well, you need to hear about money because you ain't going to have no love and joy and peace until you get some money. That's what he's teaching in the guise of the church. Even though he doesn't have an ecclesiastical body he's accountable to, anyone who's looking at it would say that's the church that you all are part of. That's what the outsider says when they see it. That's even what unsteady stoles may think when they see someone speak with that kind of authority. Secondly, and uh, not second in rank of seriousness, but just in mention, is T.D. Jakes. The Potter's House in Dallas, 28,000 members. Besides denying the orthodox historic Trinity, uh, doctrine of the Trinity, and besides terribly, terrible, unfaithful exegesis to many passages, too many to, new, to enumerate here, he also has a particularly strange view or advanced view of the words you speak. It's classic name it, claim it kind of theology. If you speak God's word, you can start claiming things for yourself. Listen to what he says about giving. If you get $100 or $1,000 and you were going to give $1,000, I tell you what, God is just going to give that $1,000 back. Well, you just broke even. You could have kept that $1,000 and not gone through the trouble. Come on, church folks. God is going to give you some more on top of that. So if you give by formula, you will get back from God in the same form, a monetary form, multiple manifold times over. This is no doubt enticing by sensual passions of the flesh. Someone who's sitting there and thinking, I wish I had more. Now, materialism, makes, let's make straight, can be true of anyone, whether they have or have not. The have-not thinks they'll be better off if they have material. That's materialism. They believe materialism will make them joy, materials, stuff, stuff that can buy other stuff or give me this experience. They believe that is the answer to joy. They're as much a materialist as the one who is totally given into it by their lifestyle already living it. So they're enticing by sinful passions of the flesh, those who barely are escaping from those who live in error. The last one, probably the most innocuous on a popular level, is Joel Osteen, who's a pastor of the Lakewood Church in Houston, 30,000 members. Texas is a happening place for false teachers, I know. <laughs> Dropped out of Oral Roberts University after one year. He has no theological training at all. In fact, uses that as a major uh, plus for his being a pastor of that church. And many are drawn to that fact. His book, Your Best Life Now, sold more than 3 million copies in just a three-year period. In addition to his gospel that can only be described as a gospel of self-esteem, and in addition to some seriously flawed views of Christ's work on the cross, 
He teaches word of faith theology in the most contemporary terms. Listen to a few quotes from him. It's not enough to simply see it by faith or in your imagination. You have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it, he says. Then this next quote I actually saw, I didn't just read it, I saw it one night. Just look in the mirror and say, I am strong, I am healthy, I am rising to new levels, I am excited about my future. When you say that, it may not be true, he admits. You may not even be very healthy today, or maybe you don't have a lot of things to look forward to, but the scripture tells us in Romans, we have to call the things that are not as if they already were. That's some serious exegetical gymnastics with that verse. But this is what he teaches, and people follow in droves to the point that they bought a basketball stadium to fit the people in. Finally, more personally, this is how he says it works itself out in his own life. When he used to travel abroad a lot, uh, he would often marvel at how God showing favor upon him would give him first-class bump-ups anytime he would go to there, or often when he would go to the airport. Listen how he explains this. I'd kid with my wife and say, watch this, we're going to get upgraded to first class. I'd go up there knowing that I have an advantage. I have the favor of God when I go up there. I just smile real big, and I could picture that. I smile real big and be real friendly, and that whole time under my breath, I'd be saying, Father, I thank you that I have your favor. I thank you that you're causing me to stand out in the crowd. I thank you that your light is shining down on me. Time after time, for no reason at all, they bump us up to first class. See, that's the favor of God. That's God's favor giving us preferential treatment. It's real. This is in your culture. This is on your television. This is what friends of yours watch and see. And don't speak about it, maybe, but they think that in their mind, that's the church somehow. And by not speaking about it, we're basically letting people think that we endorse that somehow. Not only is this deceptive, as we'll see in more vivid detail soon, it it preys on the people who are weakest for this kind of folly. It's heartless. Look at verse 18. The people who are focused upon... For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So the people that are falling prey to this are those who are at very best new converts, just just barely new, just understanding the message of the gospel by God's grace. And the first thing they hear is this kind of stuff. They're barely escaping. They're just hanging on, humanly speaking. And they're the people who get, who get uh, pursued by this kind of teaching. I, I think to a degree some of you are going to think this is ridiculous when you hear what some of these folks say. I hope you do think that based on your discipleship process, hearing teaching over time, but recognize that people are not under that kind of teaching on a regular basis in many ways. And this can sound very attractive. If you're sitting there lonely and somewhat destitute and someone speaks in these terms, it could be just the thing, just like the late night commercial that brings you in and has just enough gospel language to bring someone in with a little bit of a religious background and they're sucked right into it. The unsteady soul spoken of early in chapter 2, that's who is most likely to see or to fall prey to this. I picture personally when I think of this, only because I know at least of a couple examples of a a housebound retiree who can't get out much anymore. The visible church has largely forgotten them. And they're home and they turn on the TV and they see this bright, shiny face and they're down and they've got health problems. They may have money problems. And they hear the person using Christ-type language, but then always connecting to it. The reason why you have this problem is because of this. 
or that particular thing that you can do that can change your lot. It always, always is tied to somehow supporting that ministry financially. Always. It's never an example. I've never heard of anyone sending a prayer cloth that they didn't want a donation for. And that person, who you may think you never will be, gives of them. So I remember uh, uh, an older relative of ours, after she died, who we thought was a very stable believer, married to a pastor for many years, seeing her books after in how many different places she gave money to on her Social Security income, essentially. You would be shocked at how many people give to this. It has to be a lot. Uh, Jake's himself has a $25 million home residence uh, in total value. Now, I'm not telling you how much a pastor ought to make, but that smacks of something a little bit over the top, don't you think? And this is true of all the people that I mentioned. Deception is also what is used and I think that uh, a verse that comes to mind and maybe is in the mind of Peter as he writes is Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's the one who's barely escaping. But deception is their vice. This is their model. This is their mode. Look at verse 19. They promise freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. The irony is, is that they promise freedom from poverty, let's say, or from, from sickness, but in both cases, they are prone. Now, sickness may come later for them, but they too will not be able to heal themselves out of death. And they too are already materialists in most cases, and here they are promising freedom from poverty, when really what people need is freedom from materialism, and they are just further enslaving those who hear by the same thing they're enslaved to already. Their deception is that they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Freedom is a striking temptation to the newly converted person, without question. Uh, Those people who first come to faith, let's face it, when you first come to faith, there's an excitement about it. If you can remember it, if it wasn't a fact of you growing up in the church and always knowing, if you came to faith older in life, you might remember your first thought was, boy, this is going to be better for me. And the fact is, it's not necessarily better for you. In fact, it could be harder for you. The difference is by faith and by growing in scripture, in discipleship, and the support of the church, you come to be able to interpret life in a different way that can give you great joy in the midst of terrible trials. But it's not that life's going to be easy. Not at all. But the person who just comes to faith new, and there's a certain ease, and they hit that first, road, that first bump in the road, and then they hear someone saying, you shouldn't have any hardship. God doesn't want you to have hardship. You might just latch on to that. That's the deceptiveness of promising freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. This shows their powerlessness, too. Look at verse 19, uh, the second portion. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Take the example of the folks I just mentioned, the the, the men that I just mentioned. Uh, What did they have in common besides holding to heretical views and having no ecclesiastical accountability? Aside from that now, their ministries are supported by the giving of thousands of followers. This has made them extremely wealthy, to a man, every one of them. They are almost wholly given over to materialism, yet they themselves are promising some kind of freedom. They are slaves to materialism themselves, yet they promise some kind of freedom. Freedom from negative thoughts, freedom from poverty, freedom from sickness. In the end, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, we have the influence displayed once again in this last portion, but also, here again, the final declaration Peter gives, the doom of false teachers being declared. This has been declared throughout this epistle and in other portions of Scripture. 
uh, the third verse of the epistle, uh, the second chap- uh, chapter, third verse. And their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction uh, does not sleep. In verse 17, we just read, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. This is a hard doctrine of reprobation. That is that there are some people by God's design that are designed for destruction. That's what the scripture says. I can't paint it for you any more warm and fuzzy than that. It's what the scripture says. And so I believe it. 1 Peter 2.8 says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Later in Romans, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It says prepared for destruction. That's what Romans 9 says. Lorraine Bettner says it very well in his book on predestination. He says, the condemnation of the non-elect or the reprobate, that's another word, is designed primarily to furnish an external exhibition before men and angels of God's hatred for sin. Or in other words, it is to be an eternal manifestation of the justice of God, one of the divine attributes which apart from it could never have been adequately appreciated. This verse enumerates this in vivid detail. And for the believer, I think it serves as, as an edifying warning against departing from what we have been taught. Listen to what it says as we look at verse 20 through 22, you see here a progression of, of sorts. First, there's an entanglement into sin from which they came out of. Then they're overcome by sin. And finally, they are confirmed in their apostasy or unbelief. Uh, there's a difference. Apostasy and unbelief aren't exactly the same. Apostates are generally ones who have claimed to know Christ, been members of the church, and have departed from it. Whereas unbelief is someone who just never believed, never was in, never was in the local or visible church. They're Eternal state is, the, is still the same. They're non-elect. But their external manifestation, one's worse than the other. It says it in the passage. Listen as we uh, look together. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at that very closely and honestly. It says they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That means they have escaped some measure of the spoil that comes to one who lives wholly in the world. And I think best to put it this way, if you live in the context of the church and you're, still, and you're non-elect, say, you still are going to have a certain level of the kindness of God shown to you because your life won't go down immediately the same path that it goes down if you're living out in the world. Quite frankly, I hear it all the time from a believer married to an unbeliever. Uh, someone around will observe and they'll say, boy, that guy, if he weren't married to her, what do they mean? They mean that that person keeps them in check to some degree. Their true person is still evil at their heart, but because of the external powers that be, they stay into a certain amount of line, and they avoid some of the defilements that would happen otherwise, if that makes sense. There's a blessing that came to the Israeli soldier in the days of Israel who did not believe, yet won the battle over a city. He still won the battle, even though he himself was an unbeliever, a non-elect person. This is what is being spoken of. They have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It does not mean they were genuinely regenerate or saved. It simply means that they were in the midst of believers, looked like believers, but they showed their true colors as they are entangled in sin and not entangled the way every believer finds himself at times, but they become overcome by it. That's the next level of progression. They are again entangled in them and overcome. Look what it says. The last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, because they were under the pale of the visible church and seemed to be part of it, when they 
show their true colors. It's actually condemnation to them. The blessing and the kindness they received under the body becomes condemnation to them when they're shown to have rejected it. So what seems like great blessing in the outside, for the time may be that, it ends up being condemning of them, as it says in the passage exactly, as it would be better. Their last state has become worse for them than the first. This smacks exactly of what is said in Matthew 12. Listen to what uh, Jesus says in description of this unclean spirits coming in and out and the exact words that Peter uses, Jesus uses in Matthew 12. Listen. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waters, uh, the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is, this is the utter apostasy that's being spoken of. Those who look for all intents and purposes to be part of the church, but reject it. This is worse, the text says, than, if, than their state before. In fact, look at what it says in verse 21. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What's the holy commandment? I've searched everywhere to try to figure out what particularly it's speaking of. And I agree with the position that says in 1 Timothy, Paul writing, that this is the holy commandment that they have, that they have rejected. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, in 1 Timothy 6, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is most held by most commentators to be the holy commandment. It's Christ. It's so it's rejecting of Christ is what the ultimate evidence of apostasy is. They reject Christ. Not the person who never heard of Christ. They're unbelief. They're in the category of non-elect unbeliever. In the end, it's still bad. But the worst is to be in the body of believers, hearing the message of Christ, even professing that you believe it, and at the end, not persevering in that profession. And by the way, perseverance for anyone else, it's all of God's grace. He's the only one that can make us persevere. And the one who doesn't, that gives evidence that they themselves are not. Oh, I know this isn't warm and fuzzy, brothers and sisters. You won't see too many sermons on this many places. It's what the text says. We have to study it and wrestle with it and see what it means. In fact, I love reading other pastors of, of, of other times, how they wrestle with it. As I've read this passage that we have just studied, it seems to me that it's too much to say that these people were real partakers in the totality of genuine salvation, then they lost it somehow. Scripture's too clear across the board. Those who are elected unto salvation will be saved. Not one of the elect will be lost. Jesus says it. But it's too little to say that they experienced absolutely nothing of God's kindness while in the pale of the church. They escaped a certain level of defilement. It says so. The experience of the non-elect or rep reprobate person when a member of the visible church is certainly a mysterious thing. And I love how Calvin characterizes this. Of all people who's systematic and wants to put it in categories, listen to what John Calvin says in Institutes about this phenomena that happens in every church. He says, For though, uh, for though on those predestined to salvation receive the light of faith and truly feel the power of the gospel, yet experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected by almost the same feeling as the elect. So it looks the same on the surface. So that even in their own judgment, they do not in any way differ from the elect. So they think they're in. Therefore, 
it is not at all absurd that the apostles should attribute to them a taste of heavenly gifts and of Christ, faith for a time, not because they firmly grasp the force of spiritual grace in the sure light of faith, but because the Lord, to render them more convicted and inexcusable, steals into their minds to the extent that his goodness may be tested without the spirit of adoption. Suppose someone objects that then nothing more remains to believers to assure themselves of their adoption. I reply, although there is a great likeness and affinity between God's, God's elect and those who are given a transitory faith, yet only in the elect does the confidence flourish which Paul extols and then loudly proclaims, they loudly proclaim, Abba, Father. Therefore, Calvin says, as God regenerates only the elect with incorruptible seed forever, so that seed of life sown in their hearts may never perish. Thus he firmly seals the gift of his adoption in them, that they may be steady and sure. But this does not at all hinder the lower working of the Spirit from taking its course even in the reprobate. Besides this, the reprobate never receives anything but a confused awareness of grace, so that they grasp a shadow rather than the firm body of it. I know that's complex, but it's important to hear, because it's a phenomenon that really happens in the church, and every one of you knows someone who grew up with you, was baptized in the church, and walked away from it. How can this be? What does that mean? How could they seem so real? Well, this phenomenon I think Calvin wrestles with, and you can find it in other places, and it's open and honest about what the text says. Realizing that we have to be called to a further trust in the holy commandment, which is Christ. It drives you to Christ. It drives me to Jesus. He's my Savior. He saves me from this faith that these people have. But here's the thing. Do I, am I pronouncing reprobation upon the guys I just mentioned? Not at all. I can't do that. I'm not God. In fact, my prayer is that they repent. And they have been called to a repentance by many bodies of believers who are credible and have called them to, to their errors. And they have not yet repented of these things. But maybe they will. I don't know what their ultimate fate is. But may God, in his glory, bring more glory to himself, either by repentance or by judgment, whatever it is that he calls and seeks to do. Meanwhile, we trust on Christ. In fact, this is exactly the essence of Luke 8, 5 through 15, when the sower sows the field and the wheat and the tares come up, they look the same, but in the end, God picks the, he takes the wheat and he lets the tares grow up for a time with him, but the tares get thrown out. And the wheat, the true wheat that he raises up, that's what's left standing, that's what's harvested. Finally, this wonderful, vivid, pretty picture. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Listen, I know you all have dogs that you love and you cuddle with and you let sleep with you and, and all the kinds of neat things you all do with your dogs. But the fact is, they would eat their vomit if you didn't stop them. Right? I even had one guy after the first service tell me that he used the dog to clean up his children's vomit. Dog loved it. It's a dog. That's what dogs do. Yeah, you're going to remember that. Oh, don't remember just that. Sorry, parents. Uh, but this picture, truthfully, we, we, of course, domesticate animals and so forth, but the dog, that's what they do. And so eventually, they can look different for a while, but ultimately, if they're not real, or if they're re not really who they're pretending to be, people or whatever, they'll return to being a dog. That's what they are. The same with a sow. I mean, you remember there was that little fad where people would have pigs and they would keep them in their houses? You haven't heard much of that lately, have you? Because someone along the way figured out they're pigs. And what pigs do is they wallow in the mire. And mire's not just mud. It's everything mixed up, and they wallow in it. 
That's what they do. They're pigs. Now, ultimately, the false teacher or the one who professes outwardly something, it will be shown. The truth will be shown. And the truth may ultimately only be known to God in this life. But eventually, they'll go back. They'll show. They'll be entangled, overcome, in utter apostasy revealed. And revealed at the most important time, the coming of Christ, which is what chapter 3 speaks of from there on out. This is not at all meant to be, you know, a downer sermon. It's what it is. It's what the passage says. It drives me, it should drive you, brother, it should drive you, sister, to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, and will keep you and will never lose you. That's the question I always ask my kids on a regular basis or encourage them. Trust Christ. Trust in Jesus now. Trust in him. He'll protect you from these things. Peter is encouraging the people of God to grow in grace and knowledge. He could not possibly accomplish that without warning about false teaching. And this is all to prepare us for Christ's ultimate coming again, that we might persevere in him by his grace, looking forward to that great day of his appearing. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for even difficult words of Scripture. Lord, help us to wrestle with these words and wrestle with our own set of beliefs. Just where are we in our walk with you, Lord? Are we trusting wholly upon Jesus by your grace? Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your church as they hear uh, how mighty you are and how strong to save you are. And help us to be very reticent of anything that would call us to trust in something other than Jesus, whether it be wealth or words of faith or healing or some other kind of relief of some earthly trial, but rather we would see that only Christ can bring us true salvation and only Christ can bring us through with joy. Lord, I pray that you would let any word that I have spoken that is not according to your word fall from the the ears of the listeners here, that Jesus would be glorified by all that is done as a result of what we've heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.